Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Richard Brown. Richard is an associate clinical professor in psychiatry at Columbia University. He has taught and worked as an integrative psychiatrist for over 30 years. He's also a certified teacher of Aikido, yoga, and open focus meditation. Throughout his career, Richard has developed novel treatments, herbs, nutrients, mind-body practices, and emerging technologies for people who didn't respond to conventional medicines. He has authored several books, including How to Use Herbs, Nutrients, and Yoga in Mental Health, and The Healing Power of Breath. Richard, can you talk to me a little bit about your background, uh, the work that you do, and how you got into it? Yes. Well, I'm an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, but um, I began doing yoga when I was nine. I began doing Japanese martial arts when I was 12, a very hard style of uh, judo and jujitsu in a military club because I came from a military family, and uh, breathing and meditation were required. And then when I came to do medical school at Columbia, I was, uh, well, the medical school is up in northern Manhattan, in uh, especially at that time, a very low-income area. And the precinct where the medical school was in vied with a precinct in the Bronx for the most crack-related murders. So many of my friends, most of my friends were mugged. Uh, one was shot and killed with three kids, and I began doing what I consider the hardest style of Japanese karate. Uh, Full contact, no padding. There weren't as many lawyers back then, and breathing and meditation were really required. (laughs) It was was actually, uh, you, you you were not allowed to practice or advance unless you did, because they knew you would be badly injured if you were not doing breathing and meditation. And along with that, we did something that's often neglected in yoga or other training in America is before we did meditation, we did candle meditation, uh, which helps focus your concentration, actually. And there are, since then, I've learned other kinds that I teach that are even better than just regular candle concentration. Um, So I certainly saw changes in myself. Uh, that were really beneficial. Some years went by and uh, I felt if I continued to do karate, it would be hard to do medical procedures because my hands would be injured and you know permanently deformed. And I began doing Aikido because my first teacher had said, if you ever find an Aikido master, uh, you should do it. And breathing and meditation are even more integral to Aikido uh, than other Japanese arts, martial arts. And uh, I found that the breathing, I could see transformations, not just in myself, but other people. Um, time went by, and as I became, I became a successful psychiatrist, I was doing research, I was teaching many doctors, and um, I became dissatisfied with purely using 
psychotropic medication to help people, although I'm glad we have all the biological treatments we have and they're valuable for different kinds of people. I felt that the first thing would be for people to know how to basically enhance the performance of their autonomic nervous system. And that's something that the Russians studied um, was the centrality of the autonomic nervous system in all of our capacities, our relationships with other people, our ability to solve complex problems. Uh, and I wrote a book about a more natural approach to the epidemic, the worldwide epidemic, not just in the U.S., of uh, anxiety, depression, PTSD, stress. And uh, that book came out around 99. And uh, I also had been globalized early uh, because in the military you move around to different cultures. And I quickly learned they're really smart people everywhere. <laughs> and it's really good to learn from them. And after a year or so after the book came out, I was contacted by uh, representatives of a worldwide yoga foundation asking me if I'd like to help them uh, put on a, a symposium at the UN on affordable, low-cost alternatives for stress, depression, anxiety. Uh, and I did. And it was at that point I learned about more sophisticated yoga breathing that they were teaching. And I sent hundreds of patients to learn the breathing. And they'd come back and they'd go, Dr. Brown, I've been transformed. And I was like, great, do your breathing. And the people from the Yoga Foundation would call me up and say, you know, you really got to learn our breathing. And I'd say like, you know, I've done so many kinds of breathing and meditation in my life. It's okay. I don't need any more. I just have a practice. I do. But after a couple of years, one of them, one of the teachers who'd been a psychologist herself said, you know, you don't really know what we're teaching. And maybe it's different from what you imagine. And I said, well, you know, that's a pretty good kind of rationale for it. And I uh, arranged a course, which turned out to be a small course of other medical professionals. And the first time I began doing that kind of breathing sequence, and it's several different breathings, which we now think work on different aspects of the autonomic nervous system. Um, the way I could best put it was ha having done the breathing and Zen meditation I was doing for years, I felt when I did that, I became a bottomless ocean. But when I added the breathing to it, I felt like a bottomless ocean of joy. And I said, wow, I could learn how to do this <laughs> better. And I should learn how to teach it because, you know, I was always looking to help my patients. And uh, I did, and I traveled with the famous teacher uh, some of the time in India and other countries and taught thousands of people, helped uh, many people become teachers of that kind of breathing. And it was, uh, I transformed thousands of people's lives. Uh, as I went on with it, I felt that the Indian model, which is a guru model, uh, and other aspects from Indian culture wasn't really right for most people in America and didn't really work for many Westerners. Uh, it did for some, but most Americans, I find, don't want a new religion. Uh, they just want to feel happier and healthier. And that's my goal as a doctor. And also I found that 
uh, although, for example, I like some of the time to do some really fast breathing, uh, that that's not good for everybody. And some people will become uh, manic and need to be hospitalized. And some people may become more anxious. And uh, I had a lot of experience with veterans already. And the foundation I was working with tried to take it to veterans. And that resulted in several of them making suicide attempts and going to the ER. And I told them not to do it because I knew it wouldn't be good. They didn't want to listen because in India it's fine. But the Indian population is different from, from America. Uh, and so ultimately, after about six years, uh, I said, you know, I have to leave and do my own thing. And I was also doing research with different research groups. And a, a really good group in Canada of researchers in Toronto said to me, you know, you've got to do your own thing because this doesn't work for everybody. And you have a lot of experience and you can develop something that will be more applicable to our culture. And uh, I, I said, okay, I got to do this. And when I left, I thought, you know, I couldn't take their core breathing because that's their intellectual property. And I said, you know, I need a breathing that will work and also has even more scientific basis. Because some research had been done in India on the kinds of breathing I was teaching. I also, I would say, also along the way, uh, starting in the 90s and, and especially the early 2000s, I had studied uh, three different styles of Qigong. And some styles of Qigong emphasize breathing and some don't. And some emphasize meditation more than others. So I got exposed to a number of different healing practices along those lines. And I was always thinking, what is the most effective practice in the shortest time? Because, for example, my Japanese Aikido master is now 83. And he's amazing. And he does about three hours of breathing and meditation every morning. But I haven't found an American yet in any of my courses who wants to sign up for that. And I said, you know, we've got to find what works in the shortest time for people that's easy to do. And the other thing I found is, especially more advanced breathing, looks and sounds weird. And you can't do it anytime, anywhere. And I felt like, you know, you've got to have something you can do anytime, anywhere that has maximal impact. And the other thing I discovered over the years was people would only do things for, you know, spiritual things that improve how they work in a more subtle way, which is actually the most important stuff. They'll only do stuff for about 10 or 20 minutes a day. And so the question was how to find that. And um, one thing I learned, it's written in one of the ancient yoga texts, when you do spiritual practice sincerely, your life changes in five ways. And one is you have more joy in your life. You have less sorrow. Things that you've learned that you've forgotten come back to you when you need them. And also certain gifts may, may come. That's the least important and the one that a lot of Westerners tend to focus on. But for me, the most important of the five is what you need comes to you. And I said, okay. I need a different kind of breathing. 
And at that point, a colleague of mine, Steve Larson, who's a wonderful biofeedback expert, and he's trained with different shamans around the world and done martial arts, like me, a lot for many years of his life. He told me, you know, there's this new breathing a guy named Stephen Elliott is teaching, and it has a growing scientific basis. And so I began to learn about that. And it's a kind of breathing that was described in a Chinese medical text 3,000 years ago as the breathing for longevity. And two research groups, uh, one in Italy, one in the U.S., knowing nothing about breathing from yoga or qigong or any other place, were studying breathing, including high-altitude adaptation, and making normal people in the lab breathe in this way and measuring as many things as they could about everything in their body, every system, they discovered when people did this kind of breathing that everything they could measure began to work optimally and it would last for hours after doing a round of the breathing. And I practiced that and I realized my Akita teacher had introduced me to that and one of the styles of yoga fused with Qigong for martial arts also did the same thing, but they didn't make me do it long enough to realize what it could do. And so, uh, and there's, since, since that time even, there's been more and more research about it. It's how Sherpas naturally breathe, because it optimizes everything in your brain and your body systems. Uh, and you need that if you're at high altitude. Um, so I began to incorporate that uh, as a core part of my teaching. Um, and one thing I felt was the way the training would go in ancient times in, in Asia, both the Orient and South Asia, would be you would do natural movement of some kind, and then you would begin to do it with breathing, and then you would focus on the breathing, and then you would do meditation. And what meditation really is, is attention training. It is to train your attention. And for example, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are many kinds of meditation. Uh, and they're all about training different aspects of our attention, I feel. Uh, and then Steve Larson said, you know, there's one of the fathers of biofeedback, who is also a Zen teacher, uh, you know, you should learn about what he does. And I went and learned from him and the kind of meditation he teaches, he calls it attention training. And it's like the most advanced kinds of yoga meditation that I've done and also uh, one of the highest kinds of meditation in Tibetan Buddhism. But ordinarily, in those traditions, you don't get exposed to that or they only give you a little bit of it because it's considered the highest thing and the most sacred and that kind of thing. And also in Tibetan Buddhism, they don't teach you the breathing until after many, many years because that's considered the most important thing. Um, so I put together a combination and began to teach it and found the results were even better and easier and people had a breathing anytime, anywhere. And it basically, as we begun to do more research on it, it tunes up the most important parts of the nervous system. So what does that mean in terms of your life? It means that, and this comes out in surveys of people we've done, especially professionals 
whether high-level doctors or engineers or scientists, uh, people say, I get more work done in less time. My work is judged as being more creative. My spouse or significant others says I'm much nicer to be with, although I have no idea why. Um, and my coworkers also say I'm much better to work with. And then the other thing that came up for people over 40, uh, what they said was after six months, a chronic physical problem I had healed. And from, for guys, that was usually an orthopedic, a joint problem. Uh, because I also commonly teach, not all my courses, but many of my courses I teach an aspect of Qigong and yoga that's um, like the core breathing I teach taught to Russian special forces and enables you to prevent or treat arthritis and damage to the joints and tendons. Um, and it's also just feels good. <laughs> so um, I, what we also realized around that time, and when I say we, my wife and I, she's also a psychiatrist, is that um, what the breathing does especially is it turns on what scientists are calling the social engagement systems. That is, we're really primarily an energy field. And when I teach this at MIT or Rensselaer Polytech, they understand this. We are primarily an energy field. We have a shared, you might say, illusion that we're primarily matter or mass and solid. And we're actually, because of complementary forces within our atoms, we're mostly energy. Um, and that our heart is the center of a huge field of energy. And you can change the quality of that uh, by most easily by how you breathe. And then, in, in other words, in ancient times, what they thought was that you were an energy field and you could raise your energy and breathing really does that, and especially when you do it with movement uh, that's relaxed movement but strong. And then you circulate the energy because stress shuts down the circulation of energy in your body and your mind. But when you begin to circulate that, things open up and everything begins to work better. And then you have to store it. So the sequence of movement, breathing, and meditation is the way they trained people. And after a while, then you can begin to do it in movement. Uh, at first, it's really hard to do. You have to really turn on a part of the nervous system we're not taught to do. So we're not taught how to deal with negative emotions and stress. And it really changes your life when you can shed that stuff and just let it roll off you like you, your nervous system is covered with Teflon. Uh, and when you want to accomplish something, you're more likely to be able to accomplish that. So at the, around the same time, after 9-11 uh, in New York, I realized the one healer, one client model doesn't work well. It's just not adequate. We've reached a massive population in the world where we're having epidemics of trauma. Uh, and that just giving people a pill doesn't help that. Uh, it may help some in some ways, but it's certainly not adequate. Uh, 
and that when people do the breathing together, it can be remarkably transformative and turns on healing systems in the brain and the body and also probably delays aging. Uh, more research needs to be done on that. Um, so I began to work with 9-11 responders. And besides the trauma of things, and I won't get into detail about that, but it's there at the moment, like Columbia's University Department of Public Health a few years ago did a study showing there are 400,000 New Yorkers still extremely distressed about 9-11. And also many of them were physically affected working at Ground Zero. And uh, I got invited to start working with 9-11 responders around uh, 2007. And then a nonprofit that was formed to develop natural healing alternatives for responders um, came to me, and most all of them were yoga practitioners, and they said, would you help us? And so for years, the money from my courses, Teaching the Breathing in New York City, go to buy herbs to detox responders because we figure there were like 2,400 different chemicals in the Trade Center Towers. And we went to a famous MD in India who's also... Uh, an herbalist that uses Tibetan methods with Indian herbs to detox people because they've had they had the Bhopal disaster from when Union Carbide exploded and other chemical things there and he had developed a regimen that was in ancient texts about detoxing people and we had great results with 9/11 responders um, and then I think partly because I'm a doctor other people began coming to me and asking me to work with different populations. So that's led to working with military, working with veterans, working with um, people who, primarily women, but some men and children uh, who've been trafficked, like in South Sudan, into North Sudan, captured and trafficked and tortured every day for for years, uh, helping them heal and recover, uh, gosh, so many projects. I recently was back from Rwanda, uh, so I'm working with a wonderful nonprofit uh, to help people recover from the genocide there. We're, we're also working with children, and we think, I mean, my feeling is my life has been in many ways very good, but it would have been a lot better if I'd learned these things by the time I was 10 or 11 or 12. And nobody teaches us how to get rid of these negative emotions. And they, I feel like they're like barnacles on a ship. They accumulate over time and degrade the passage of the ship through the water and, uh, or keep the nervous system from working well. And we be, we've begun working with different school systems, um, both in rural uh, New York State in a post-rust belt, high opioid overdose area, uh, and what's interesting is the children bring it to their parents and older people <laughs> and kids learn a lot faster. Um, and we also are right now working with a wonderful nonprofit, uh, called no limit generation, bringing it to the 340,000 Rohingya children in Bangladesh who all have severe PTSD from what's happened there. 
and we're also using that as a model because many children and, and adults, and we've, we're doing an, a, a video manual that people will be able to access to heal from trauma and also feel better and you know, help their brains work better and so on. Uh, so, you know, the, the, it's a challenge using social media. We've done a lot of stuff online, but we also find that people tend to start doing the breathing in a stressed way. That's how their system has been working most of their lives. And we need to coach people. And there's only so much you can do uh, without being with the person to coach them. And um, it's amazing the results that come. People are just shocked. Uh, a, a video guy was filming children in Bangladesh where people who had just trained with us, uh, who are already good yoga teachers, uh, were working with the kids. And, and he said, I couldn't believe how they came in looking half dead. And in a short time, they were giggling and smiling and hugging each other. And one of the things I had done is I watched people learning Qigong and yoga and breathing and meditation was what effect did it have on people's behavior, even out of their awareness? And, you know, my feeling was when people go from being stressed and angry to smiling and interacting with other people in a much happier way, that's what you want. And so I picked the things that had the most effect in the shortest time and put them together. And the thing is, these things were usually developed in a religious cultural tradition. And the average person would think, this is our thing. And it's better than other people's thing. And it was often kept secret. And my feeling is, back in the days when people had a lot of extra time in their day to do that kind of thing, it was okay. But these days, people just aren't going to do it. They have to feel benefits really quickly. They have to feel something significant. And it also helps, one of the reasons it helps to do it in a group, not only is it more powerful in terms of the energy of it, but you see other people changing because mostly we don't observe ourselves well. We look more at what's outside of us and we can look at things happening with other people and say, you know, that looks really good <laughs> and, and want to do it. So let me give you a chance to ask more questions. <laughs> okay, I wrote down a lot of notes. Um, a few observations. One, I think it's really fascinating that um, as a Western doctor, you're teaching so many what are traditionally Eastern approaches to medicine. And um, I think it's really cool because I mean, a lot of these cultures have been around thousands and thousands of years. And as in, in the West, I mean, I know growing up in middle class America and suburbia, I was taught medicine was like uh, you go to an office building, there's a usually a guy in a white jacket and he prescribes a pill. And that was sort of my interpretation. And I have a feeling a lot of people who are listening to this probably that is their interpretation of, of medicine. And, and so I think it's re really interesting. And you talked about all these different approaches. I want to dive a little bit deeper into some of them. I wrote tons of uh, quick notes and we'll see some, some of these things I'll probably need clarification for. And, and um, the very first thing that you said that um, brought something up is you were talking about, actually, it looks like I might even have two pages. Hold on. Uh, you, were, you, you were talking about how you were learning uh, karate and they were stressing breathing and medis uh, me meditation. 
because you said that you conveyed to me that you would hurt yourself. And my assumption is that in the process of practicing this, the martial art, you acquire physical and maybe even a, a probably emotional traumas. Is that true? And then how is meditation and breathing help a human being to, uh, to deal with these traumas that they might acquire? Well, I'd say the most difficult traumas in our lives, I think, are emotional traumas. Uh, generally, it's easier when you're young. Your body heals uh, or can heal with the right help often well. Uh, but it's the emotional stuff that's the most important and that takes us out of the present. Because really, the things we really enjoy and when our performance is best is when we are present uh, for what we're doing. And well, part of what happens with doing breathing and attention training is you are much more present. So you become a better listener and also you can accomplish things that you have an intention to do a lot better. Um, so I think it, what I find, at least, and I'm a psychiatrist, I think you know, mind and spirit are so important and they, in a sense, inform the body. And you can learn to turn these systems on and part of what they do, and there's now growing research on this, is when you do the proper breathing, it turns on healing anti-inflammatory systems in the body. And uh, part, of, part of what the pharmaceutical companies are doing is they're trying to find more and more pills that reduce inflammation. And I think it's, you know, it's good to have the pills, but actually... You know, I had an older doctor uh, in a senior elective in medical school, and what he pointed out was the word doctor means to teach. It used to be people didn't have all these pills and stuff, <laughs> that doctors taught people how to live in a much more healthy way. And I see these practices as things that were developed in different cultures back when people didn't have a bunch of pills to give, and you had to know how to work with your own internal software of your mind to turn on healing mechanisms. So many of the things I use were developed for wounded warriors several thousand years ago to help them heal and to turn those systems on. And they also happen to be good for longevity because stress ages us faster and also makes us not as nice to be with. <laughs> and what's also interesting is a lot of people find their kids can immediately tell whether they're doing the breathing or not. Because they'll say, you're much nicer when you do your breathing. <laughs> so, And also pets, one thing you find when you're doing your breathing, they will want to come and, and cuddle with you. And one of the things we, we believe happens, and we've been saying for years and now, uh, groups in India are doing research showing this, is the breathing not only turns on your healing anti-inflammatory social connecting system with other people, but it reduces uh, inflammation dramatically uh, in the body. And some medical companies are trying to develop, you know, fancy, really expensive electronic stimulators to reduce inflammation in different organs of the body. And, you know, my feeling is you can use your own nervous system as a healing tool.
you just have to be shown how to do that, and it takes some practice and coaching. Uh, because in the beginning, the stress you've had gets in your way of optimally doing the breathing. <laughs> so it's a matter of some coaching, just like everything else. So this is really a skill. It's not a concept. The other thing I find with people in America, and because I was trained from such an early age in Japanese arts, and there's not there, there's a theory to it in a sense, but you're not taught that for many years. It's a skill or a set of skills. And learning those skills and practicing them requires patience and discipline and perseverance. And in the beginning, you can't have an immediate expectation. So when I'm teaching people, one of the things we do is you learn to have a feeling that you're moving energy around your body to places you need it. And it's quite, it becomes quite a powerful physical sensation and uh, that's important if you get hit in sports or some other injury in life. Um, but in the beginning, I didn't feel a thing. And I say to people, you may not feel something right now, but just keep practicing. And when, often when you just least think it's going to happen and you just let go and say, you know, I've been doing this so long and nothing's happening, boom, that's when it happens. <laughs> so... Uh, it's hard often, I find, for people in our culture to uh, to grasp that, partly because, you know, we've had a good run here. Uh, and so many people in our culture haven't had to really work hard like my father's generation did growing up in the Depression era. And I, I was reminded of this uh, last week. I, I know a lot about Audie Murphy, so I, I may date myself, but Audie Murphy was the most decorated GI in World War II. And he was this little guy, this tiny guy from Texas. And uh, a story I had not heard about him. He, he did many amazing things in combat. Uh, but one was near the end of the war, and they were in the woods in Germany. And I lived in Germany for three years. We were stationed there, so I know what the woods were like. And they were on, on this, you know, they were the point of the spear's edge uh, heading toward Berlin. And they got ambushed by a German sniper in the woods. And the, the point man was killed. And so they all tried to seek cover. And, and Audie Murphy jumps behind a tree. And uh, it was a small, they were small trees where they were. And the sniper then shot him in the leg and the thigh. And he went down to the ground, and his helmet flew off. And, uh, you know, many people would have been done for at that point. But he saw the muzzle flash from the second shot when he got shot in the thigh. And he then, with a not sniper's rifle, he had an M1, uh, he proceeded to shoot the sniper through the eyes as the sniper was about to shoot him. And... How did he learn to shoot that well and be that relaxed under pressure? Because you can't, you can't do your best unless you're both relaxed and switched on. And usually when you're switched on, you're tense. And when you're relaxed, you're not switched on. Uh, and part of it was when he was 13, his father left them, his mother and the other kids, for good. And he had to start hunting 
to bring in food for the family. And he had to make his own bullets. And it cost money to make the bullets. And every bullet counted. So he like had to focus on when he shot, he got food <laughs> for his family. And it's like, you know, my father, when he was eight years old, his father sent him out, gave him a rifle with a couple bullets and a fishing hook and said, come back in three days. And, you know, that's what you had to do. So we don't get that. <laughs> but it trains your mind and body uh, to really perform at a peak level. But I think that it's important to know these other things so that you're, you're shedding stress. And in fact, in sniper school, you learn to use your breathing, but they don't go into it in depth. But breathing is crucial to shooting properly. Just to, it's an analogy. Yeah, I think this is super fascinating. I want to get into some of the some more uh, detail under the breathing. But before I do, for people listening to this who don't have the medical background that you do, can you talk about how the the nervous system works and how is it that we carry stress in our body? Yes. So. The autonomic nervous system runs everything, the most crucial stuff in the brain and the body. And um, you have two main components which have subdivisions. So a crucial component that keeps us alive over the last thousands of years we've been around on this earth in one humanoid form or another is your stress response system. And scientists call that the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And that's kind of like your alarm first. It's like when you're anxious or fearful, that system is the alarm ringing. And then when that stress goes on for a while, you often you go into what the first Russian researcher in this area a hundred years ago called the maintenance phase. After the alarm phase, you have a maintenance phase. And people often experience an energy drain. So energy is the key to everything in our lives. And the autonomic system, in part, is regulating the energy inside you. And the stress response system enables you to burn energy because to get something you want and to avoid something that you don't want because it might hurt you or kill you or make you feel bad, um, you have to burn energy. So, And we don't even realize when we start thinking about something we need to get, uh, that's burning energy. So that system is really critical. After the maintenance phase, if the stress goes on for a long period of time, then you go into an exhaustion phase and all the different components of your autonomic system are depleted of energy. Now, the sympathetic branch, that is the stress response system, itself has two subdivisions. And the one that develops first evolutionarily um, is kind of a stop-look system. It inhibits you from doing stuff because you, you want to avoid doing stupid stuff. You have to look before you cross the street. 
<laughs> in New York, you better look both ways, because <laughs> otherwise you may hit, be hit by a bicycle messenger. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you don't have to just look for cars. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you have this system that inhibits you from doing stupid stuff. And also, you need to have a, a moment to assess things uh, in terms of what to do. It is counterbalanced by the branch that helps you get the stuff that makes you feel good. Freud called this, in a sense, the pleasure-pain principle. You know, we're looking for pleasure, and we're avoiding pain. And that's what your stress response system does. And different transmitters underlie those different components. So the, the system that it keeps you from doing stupid stuff, that uses serotonin primarily. So that's what Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil and other serotonin reuptake inhibitors work on. Um, and that is um, complemented by the pleasure reward system that helps you get the stuff that makes you feel good. So sex, drugs, rock and roll. And dopamine is the most important transmitter underlying that. And, and there's also endorphins and stuff. And that can make you feel really good. Can you explain how, um, like just briefly, how endorphins and dopamine work? So dopamine is really important for anticipation and wanting to get something. Uh, and so when we do something pleasurable, we get bursts of dopamine. Now, for most of our evolution, you got little bursts of dopamine. Nowadays, if you give yourself drugs, you may get a big burst of dopamine. So cocaine especially releases dopamine. And, uh, you know, uh, crack, uh, methamphetamine, ice, you know, that releases uh, dopamine big time. That's an unnatural thing, and it distorts the system and kind of burns it out over time. So you get a hit, but you're going to pay in the long run. The endorphins are more complicated, and I feel like we just need so much more research. But the endorphins make you feel good and often make you feel quite good in relation to other people. And when the endorphins, but they're, let's say dopamine is more energizing and the endorphins are more calming at the same time. So they both are involved in pleasure. How are they released? Well, there are different, uh, different nerves in your brain and your body that release them. Uh, that's how they work. They use dopamine. They release that, and that signals another nerve to do stuff that's important. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way, you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, 
check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Someone told me that endorphins are released when we exercise, that um, they're also talking about oxytocin, and they said it was released through touch, physical contact. Um, another friend of mine was saying that there's some other circumstances when oxytocin can be released. Yeah, I'm just curious, like, what sort of triggers, uh, what triggers these things? Yeah, all well, that's really important. So, well, that's important, and it's also related to the autonomic system. Uh, it's integrally related. So, um, dopamine you get anticipating pleasure, and when you're first getting something pleasurable, uh, endorphins come often along with that. Um, we did with one of my famous mentors, John Mann, when we were at Cornell, he's, he's now like me at Columbia. Uh, he did a study where we had people and we were subjects in our own study where you would exercise maximally on a treadmill running. And we measured everything. I think there were like over 30 different brain chemicals and hormones, including endorphins, and dopamine metabolites and other stuff, all kinds of stuff. And because people have been saying for several decades now, yeah, exercise releases endorphins, that's why you do it. Well, what we saw was exercise released everything we could measure, <laughs> big time. And that's really good for you. And one of the differences in how we live these days compared to how we lived over most of our evolution uh, is basically, for most of our evolution, you worked really hard physically all day to eat. I mean, watch a show called Naked and Afraid. <laughs> you know, it's not easy when you're in the wilds and you don't have the help of civilization to get enough food to eat and survive. And, and certainly to thrive is even harder. And when you exercise, you're releasing all those hormones. Now, I also think that something that's been ignored is um, when you expose your body to a range of challenges, and not just physical strength and endurance challenges, but variations of temperature, it also tones up your autonomic system to work better and releases hormones uh, that are crucial to our feeling our best. And a really interesting book that gets into this a bit is a, a recent book by an author named Scott Carney, and it's called What Doesn't Kill Us. Uh, and I think I agree with him that I think many of the diseases we have of civilized life come from we're sitting all day and we're not using our bodies constantly. And we try to compensate for it by some pretty intense exercise but it's just not quite the same. And whether you were a man or a woman, you were working hard all day and burning energy. And also you didn't have air conditioning and you didn't have terribly good heating. So your body got exposed to a range of temperatures that, that are challenging. Um, again, to review, the autonomic system, you have the stress response part and it's counterbalanced by this healing, social bonding, uh, part that recharges energy and within the stress response part you have the 
part that helps you get things that make you feel good, and you have another part that gets the kind of helps you avoid things that would make you feel bad or kill you. And things like serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac work on that inhibitory part. And things like cocaine, sex, really good music uh, help you, you know, get a burst of dopamine uh, that feels good. Uh, it's, it's not so easy getting the burst of endorphins, but almost certainly uh, sex does that. Uh, and along with it, it looks like to really release oxytocin, you have to work on stimulating the soothing bonding system, the parasympathetic branch, as it's called by scientists, of the autonomic nervous system. And then when you release oxytocin, which some the media, in the media it's often called the cuddle hormone, cuddle, C-U-D-D-L-E, or love hormone, that further enhances your social bonding system. So you feel more connected to the people around you or the person with you when oxytocin is released. What releases oxytocin? Well, the thing that we know does it bigger than better than anything in all mammals, including human beings, is having sex. And also it looks like in animals, um, having a meal together kind of having a communal meal. So think of a wedding celebration or a family meal together that releases bonding oxytocin and you're more connected. And it may only be a little bit of oxytocin, but, but that's, that's good. <laughs> it's better than none at all. It's not too much. Uh, and there are probably a bunch of things uh, that, that happen with that. Uh, and yes, touch does release, the proper kind of touch releases endorphins. Uh, not so much light stroking. It has to be deep pressure to stimulate, we think, the vagal nerve, V-A-G-A-L. The vagal nerve is the 10th cranial nerve. And it is 80% of the parasympathetic branch, your social bonding, energy recharging, anti-inflammatory part of your autonomic nervous system. Um, so there's a connection with all these things. Now, most of the time, the way people live their lives, their, para their soothing, bonding, recharging system is on low burner. The breathing turns it way up. And it also improves the activity of your sympathetic branch, your stress response system. So, and different kinds of breathing have more impact. So in the ancient Qigong texts, because one of my teachers translated ancient Qigong texts um, from that ancient Chinese, what they said was when people first come for healing, whether it's emotional, physical, their stress response system, they understood this dichotomy within the autonomic nervous system. Basically, those people come with an excess of stress activity, their sympathetic branch is way overactive, and their soothing, healing, bonding part is way turned down. When you're stressed, you're not really connected to other people. You're very self-absorbed. Uh, and you're thinking of yourself, let's put it that way. And um, so what they first taught, usually, 
whether it was China or India or Siberia uh, or Japan, is they taught slow breathing. So people who do yoga often learn slow breathing. Breathing about three to six breaths per minute has an optimal effect on the performance of everything in the brain and the body. And just as an aside, uh, it also releases nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is how Viagra works. And that induces a relaxation and an optimal performance of arteries in the body and capillaries. How is that released in the body? Well, it's a crucial kind of neuromodulator trans transmitter in the cells of the body. So the, the chemist who discovered it got a Nobel Prize. It is pivotal, crucial to basically everything that happens in our brain and our body. Too much of it's not good. Too little of it is not good. You have to have the right balance. And it's, it becomes optimal when you breathe three to six breaths per minute. And you get a lot released around three breaths per minute, which is uh, kind of important for many things to have the right amount of it working for you. Um, so, you know, I find men often say, oh, real men don't do breathing. You know, they don't do this yoga breathing shit. And I'm like, well, you know, actually everything works better if you know how to do it right. So in the beginning, they said, in the ancient practices, you start with slow breathing. And then after 10 or more years, you begin to do faster breathing because the faster breathing helps your stress response system, the sympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system. And it also, a colleague, a famous colleague in India named Shirley Tellis has done studies showing the fast breathing really helps your attention and helps you absorb more information accurately in a shorter time. So there's value to fast breathing, but the question is how fast, how long, and who is it safe for, who is it not safe for? And that's something that, you know, we have experience with. More research needs to be done. For me, fast breathing feels great, uh, wonderful. But for some people, it can make them get a manic and psychotic episode or have PTSD flashbacks, or have an anxiety uh, <laughs> attack, uh, or it also, the fast breathing degrades the optimal performance of your heart and lungs. It has some benefits for your brain and your nervous system. Um, but then what the t ancient text said was, after people learn those breathing, then you teach them this particular breathing which for the person of average height that is under six feet or around six feet, uh, you're breathing about four and a half to six breaths per minute. Yeah, maybe going up to seven, but kind of four and a half to six breaths per minute. Everything you can measure in the brain and the body is optimal, breathing like that. And, doing a, and it looks like a, a good round of it is about 20 minutes. Now, the cardiologists in Italy took professional mountain climbers who, to be a professional mountain climber, you're an extreme athlete. Because I, I, years ago, I did mountain climbing for some years and trained with some of the best people. And they did, you know, all year they did ski marathons. They did bicycle marathons. They did running marathons. They also did, you know, really good swimming. 
and triathlon stuff. And they could typically do 25 to 50 one-arm push-ups with either arm and often like, you know, 25 pull-ups with one arm, either arm. And that's what you need to do when you're doing professional climbing, I think. And, um, you know, what this researcher, Luciano Bernardi in Italy did was half of them got randomized to learn breathing. They were, they used six breaths per minute. It feels really fast to me. It's not very meditative, but it really works on the systems of your body. And they had to come to the laboratory for an hour a day for two years. And they had them hooked up to all kinds of monitors <laughs> measuring as many things as they could including the, the hormone, for example, from your kidneys that helps your red cells exchange oxygen in the blood, erythropoietin. So some athletes are doping with erythropoietin. I, I mean, you know, when you're a professional athlete, I can understand wishing to do everything. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't do it myself. But uh, So what they found, oh, and the other group just kept doing their usual intense athletic activities. So the average human being, even somebody who does marathons, uses about 25% of their lung surface. The average person might use about 20%. So two years of doing this, they go back to Everest, and they start measuring what happens to them as they climb to the top of Everest. And what they found was the guys who'd done the breathing at six breaths per minute for an hour a day, they didn't need oxygen and they could comfortably climb to the top of Everest without oxygen. And at 20,000 feet, they were taking 10 breaths per minute, and they were comfortable. The guys who hadn't done it needed oxygen, and they were taking 20 breaths per minute, and they were really stressed. So understand, <clears throat> this took several years. And in a sense, they also measured what lung physiologists call dead space in the lung. So your active space is, say, 20-25%. And the maximal anybody can attain, even the best athlete, is 80%. I won't get into the physiology of that. But you always have some dead space between the film covering the lung and the chest and ribs. And... Um, Basically, they found these guys went to 80%. Now, what I say to people in my courses is, suppose you had a cell phone that had 20% coverage, and I, I, I could tell you that if you do this breathing, you will have a cell phone that has the, the maximal coverage you can get at 80%. <laughs> Which would you prefer? Uh, so that's the thing. I would say battery life isn't even, you talk about cell phones, say, so do you want to... 80% uh, charge or do you want a 20% charge? <laughs> well, that's right. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> but you do have to recharge optimally every day. But it's, you know, when you do it in the way that was developed, we think, by Russian Orthodox monks about a thousand years ago, it's simple and powerful and it feels really good. And that modification we call moving the breath you feel like you're moving your breath around your body. I want you to get into the specifics of it, but I have one other question um, before I do. You've talked multiple times um, in this conversation around PTSD, and I wonder if you can just talk to us about what is PTSD and how 
I mean, my last question was how is trauma stored in the body? Like how, how is PTSD, how do we end up with PTSD? Right. So that goes back to the thing about the um, stress response system. The first phase is an alarm phase, kind of an anxiety phase. And then you go into maintenance phase, and that's often where depression begins to appear. The final phase of the accumulation of stress is the exhaustion phase of your stress response system. And not just your stress response system and the pleasure pain components, or you might say the activation inhibition components are degraded in their function so that your your stress response system becomes erratic. So a lot of the time it's kind of shut down and your brain and body aren't working too well. And then sometimes when you have to switch it on, it overreacts to things. And that's often where people have explosive anger uh, as part of their PTSD is the stress response system is just really erratic. It's not well regulated. Uh, And we see this not just in adults, but in children who've been subjected to physical abuse or sexual abuse uh, and so on. So you might say in a sense, stress happens when you're the energy you need to do things is greater than your internal supply of energy. That's when stress begins to happen. And energy is crucial to everything in your body, including the repair systems of your cells. Your cells get degraded by working hard, and they have to repair. It's kind of like your whole body. You've got to rest <laughs> when, you, when, you do, when you did intense exercise. Uh, and your cell recharges the energy. So your system has to have a period of quiescence. I mean, you look at lions, what do they do? They rest, and then they hunt. They rest, they hunt. And the hunt is an intense activity, running down a huge animal and killing it. And then you've got to eat and rest. Or another way it's often put is feed and breed. Um, and those things recharge your system. in all mammals. But stress also degrades the activity of the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic system, your recharging healing system. So you're maximally stressed and all the parts of your system are not able to repair things and or perform their normal functions that help you do the stuff you need to do. Uh, So when you do the breathing, you begin to recharge all those components. So your brain works better. Your emotions are more well-regulated. You feel more connected to people. And when you're stressed, you're in a default mode where you do the simplest reflexive survival things. And one of our survival things is being angry (laughs) and fighting. So it becomes hard to cooperate, and especially these days, we often have to work in groups of people and work with them to get a product. And stress interferes with the ability to relate to other people. And to work with other people, my feeling is you need to be feeling their feelings to work with them. And you also, to feel their feelings, you have to be connected to your own feelings, your inner self. The people who are the best at whatever they do 
are connected to other people that they're working with and they're connected to what's happening inside them. Because, you know, there's, so what I'm saying is you have an inner world and there's the outside world you're dealing with. And the way you imagine the outer world to, to be is partly dependent on how your brain organizes that. And that's not just the sensory input coming into you from outside. It's your imagining and predicting what the outside world is like. And stress degrades your ability to perceive that because part of how you perceive the outside world is your body is sensing things from inside and your vagal nerve is sending that information up into your brain. And in fact, even the bacteria in your gut influence how the vagal nerve does that and how well it does that. And that then influences how well the front of your brain can solve problems, how well it can plan and anticipate and sequence your responses to different problems. And one thing we know, actually from research done by a wonderful group in Norway with military, is that when you improve your heart rate variability, the front of your brain to perform what we call the executive functions works a lot better. And it turns out the breathing helps heart rate variability better than anything. The next best thing is cardio exercise that will regulate heart rate variability. And heart rate variability at the moment is probably the best single predictor of health and the likelihood of living healthy longer. Well, why is that? Uh, it kind of taps into your. It taps into the quality of these different components of your autonomic nervous system. It's a, it's the best single measure we've got right now of the health of your autonomic nervous system. So, in terms of how we store stress, I'd say we store it in a sense in the signature of the degradation of our cellular repair systems. And as our energy is depleted and our repair systems are working less well, you get, for example, more free radicals of oxygen. And it looks like the blood vessels stiffen up because you're not releasing enough nitric oxide on an ongoing basis. And you get high blood pressure and other things begin to age and break down a lot faster. I think this is fascinating. I, I want you to go into the breathing now. Say so you've brought it up multiple times. Talk to me about, is it coherent breathing? Is that how you say it? Yeah, the name that Stephen Elliott coined for it, because uh, he was the first person really to talk about it and teach about it. Uh, he used the term coherent breathing. Uh, the cardiologist in Italy calls it resonant breathing. The reason they've each used those terms is because when you do the breathing, at about four and a half to six breaths per minute, equal inhale and exhale. Because when you want to relax more deeply and you don't have to worry about being switched on and doing differential equations, uh, you can slow your breathing down even more and you can also prolong the ratio of exhale to inhale. I know this gets a little technical. It helps to have some diagrams <laughs> to, to see it. But um, basically... As you slow the breathing down, you relax. But coherent or resonant breathing 
where you have equal inhale and exhale, about five or six breaths per minute, you get an optimal balance and cooperation between the, the stress response system and the healing social bonding system. And a remarkable coherence and resonance gets set up between your head and your heart. Or in a sense, again, training in martial arts, uh, you think of body, mind, spirit, and all of those you train in martial arts, and ultimately you bring them together. And one of the things that helps you bring them together is doing the proper breathing. And it develops those skills in your body progressively over time, like with the mountain climbers doing the breathing. It optimizes those systems to work together. And you can see it in a computer plot of measurements of brain waves and heart blood flow. You see this amazing coherence. Normally, our systems in our regular everyday stress state where our mind is going all over the place is you have an inco you have incoherent chaotic rhythms in every system. Although your systems do have rhythms, like there's a certain time of the day where you solve algebra problems better. Do you know what the optimal time of the day is for strength? I, I would assume maybe first thing in the morning? No, it's around 5 or 6 p.m. <laughs> why, why is that? I don't know for sure. I, I have not figured it out yet. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like cardio is often really good late morning, middle of the day. So each of these systems has its own rhythm and they're ordinarily not synchronized. And when you do the breathing, these different rhythms begin to synchronize. And again, they are crucially modulated by the actions of the different components of the autonomic nervous system. It's, it's fascinating, actually. It's, it's quite beautiful mathematically. Uh, so your body, mind, spirit comes together. So what I'd say is you have your body, and your body wants comfort. You have your mind. Your mind wants variety, excitement, and stimulation. And your spirit, which we find easiest to measure from the electrical activity of the heart, your heart wants connection and love, peace, and joy. Those, that's like having a dog sled team with three lead dogs going in totally different directions. <laughs> it's amazing we could accomplish anything. <laughs> and, and most people are aware their head and their heart doesn't go together a lot of the time. Your head has very different ideas from your heart. But when you do the breathing, they come together. And I feel like people start making better decisions. And I'll give you an example of using these things. For example, a patient of mine came to me, and he's, he's a pretty amazing athlete. And when he came, he was sent by a doctor for terrible depression. Well, I talked to him, and I realized, well, he had attention deficit disorder as a kid. He loved, loved trying out new things and, and exciting things. Uh, but his biggest problem that looked like depression on the surface was he had multiple addictions. So cigarettes, weed, cocaine, food, prostitutes, you name it, he was into it. Uh, and uh, it was destroying him and destroying his life. And so I slightly changed his medication and I gave him you know, medication to help his ADD. But there's a lot more. Like in ADD, your frontal lobe executive functions 
that kind of planning sequencing part of the brain doesn't work right. Now, he came from a wealthy family, and they'd given him money to try to start businesses, and he always screwed up. He made lousy decisions, and he had trouble working with people. And so, you know, as, as I was working with him, I said, okay, you're going to learn to do coherent breathing. So he began to do the coherent breathing, and he realized it made him feel better, and he was a lot calmer, and he could make better decisions. Oh, somewhat. And he said, okay, doc, what's next? I said, okay, I'm going to show you this posture we call a channeling sky and earth. It's a Qigong posture, and it balances the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems in a, in a very beautiful way. You're going to do your breathing that's balancing those two parts of your systems in this posture holding still. And you'll start with three minutes. He said, doc, three minutes, that's too easy. I said, okay, start with five minutes. So a month goes by, he comes back, and he says, okay, got it, five minutes, doc. What do I do next? I said, okay, you're going to do that for 10 minutes every day. You'll do your breathing 10 minutes a day in that posture. He said, okay. He comes back in a month and says, okay, doc, I got it. It wasn't so easy, but, and try it. If you, you'll have to go to robertpeng.com to see it's the fourth golden wheel of the four golden wheels. And, and I often teach it in my courses, uh, and it's very helpful, among other things, for PTSD. So, you know, he does it for 10 minutes, says, okay, I got it. What do I do next? I said, okay, you're going to do it for 15 minutes. You do your breathing and you'll move, be moving energy around your body as you keep still in this posture. So you're kind of in a horse stance. Your, your feet are like one and a half or two shoulder widths wide. And you're in a horse stance, kind of in a squat. And your arms are held up way above your head, like you're holding a giant ball of energy said, you're going you're gonna to do this 15 minutes now and you're going to move energy around your body like I taught you when you were lying down and relaxed. And he says, okay. So a month goes by, comes back and I say, okay, doc, I got that. What next? I said, you're going to do it 20 minutes a day. And he began cursing. He said, 20 minutes a day, you've got to be shitting me. I can't do that. And I said, well, listen, you know, you did 5, 10, 15 minutes when it started out. It felt like it was real easy. And if listeners do it, you'll see for the average person, five minutes feels like a stretch at the beginning. And you get a buildup of lactic acid. But with the breathing, you wash away the lactic acid. And he began doing it 20 minutes a day. And he did that every day for the next six months. And then something amazing happened. He didn't have interest in the cravings he'd had for years that were killing him, destroying his life. And he was using women and not relating to them. And he was making lousy decisions in his businesses. And then he began making really good decisions. And he's married now to a wonderful woman. They just had their second child. And he really enjoys the kids. And he really loves her. And it's like, gosh, what is it about life? I mean, it's the most important thing if you have a chance to review your life before you die, is the quality of your relationships. Nobody really cares at that point how many, how many businesses you had that succeeded, how many, how many homes you had, how many trips you had to exotic places. What's really important is the quality of your relationships and the quality of you as a person and how much you help others and enrich their lives and make people happier, and make our society a better place to be. 
And the thing is, when your system is balanced, you just naturally begin to gravitate in that direction. It's like your system doesn't work right when it's stressed, and when it's not stressed, it knows the right things to do. I think it's beautiful. There's a story I'll share with you, and and uh, and I think it's important for. I mean, I talk about this in some of the other podcasts, and maybe not in this way, but um, for a while, for a long time, I didn't understand how to release tr- trauma, and and um, there's a lot of things, especially as you get older, you just start acquiring, or I start acquiring, and the, and before I get into it, there's a conversation I had the other day with uh, a woman in my life is really important to me, and she said something I said I'm feeling anxiety in my body and I can feel it. And I started describing it and she goes well d- don't feel anxiety and in some ways I feel like that's how I said no I, I, I want to feel it's it's okay to feel anxiety uh, it will pass in a, in a few minutes and but I feel like that's part of the process of how we begin to suppress these emotions and I instinctively knew why she said that and later on she confirmed it she said we had, I brought it up later on and I said hey like if I say something like that I'm just checking with my body and trying to communicate it with you because it's a way for us to connect and a way for me to release it and versus me just sort of suppressing it and holding it in and then accruing it and she goes well I, I think I just didn't want you to um, I didn't want to make you feel anxiety and I said no I'm I'm just feeling anxiety like you don't you don't have to worry about that what I want you to do is tell me how you feel and connect with how you feel and and you don't have to worry about that um, because when we start suppressing, we begin to disconnect. And for me, I, I did this for years as an entrepreneur, as somebody who was mentoring lots of other people and and taking on some of their traumas, uh, trying to do deal with other traumas that I acquired in my life. And I found, especially in Western culture with masculinity, it's like, a, I don't need help. Um, just just do it anyway. You're being a wimp. Right, suck so, it up. Yeah, exa- exactly. And so I found myself doing three things. Suppressing things, compartmentalizing them, and then withdrawing. And eventually, it caused me to have a breakdown. And when I had a breakdown, basically, like I, like I was with an ex-girlfriend, and I just started losing control of my mind. It started freaking me out. And then I became, after that, I developed a form of PTSD. Uh, what I tried to do is I, I tried veganism, and that was like the the catalyst. Everybody's body's different, but I tried veganism. And on the fifth day, my vo- my speech started slurring. Um, I started to shake. And my thoughts started getting um, convoluted. I, I couldn't think very clearly. And then I started losing control of my thoughts, and it started freaking me out. Nothing ever happened except for I just had a bunch of crazy thoughts. And... But I, I developed PTSD after that, where I was scared to think. Well, it's really and, scary. And, and then I was scared yeah. to think about thinking. And, right. and it wasn't until, I mean, it took a while for my brain to sort of relax, and or, or just basically it took time for it to heal itself. And my first instinct on how to deal with that was to go back and basically do all-consuming exercises. Some of them were helpful. Like the first thing I got into was piano, and I started learning piano, and I learned that it activated more parts of, or at least what I read, activated. It's really good for your brain, yeah. Yeah, it activated a lot of parts of my bra- brain, and, and so instead of like ending up in this like circle, of this washing machine or circle of paranoia or whatever about this time I had a bunch of crazy thoughts, I it started allowing me to focus on other things. And so after time, my brain healed itself, but I still didn't understand, have the tools to release some of these traumas and a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is things that 10 years ago or five years ago I, I would have thought were, were so far out there but what I've learned is like they were they were been incredibly helpful things like 
learning some of that for me the process that was really healing um well one just time but also and then creating myself a, a situation where i had less stra- stress and anxiety so create nurturing that stability but also learning i didn't have to react to the past or future and i could just be present and then learning to meditate and create as you said that focus on attention but creating space in my mind and and then learning that i could release physically release uh some of these traumas and even an example used where you're using how do you pronounce it is it qui-gong or, or qigong 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 i've never done qigong and i'm and after hearing you talk about it i'm really fascinated because you're talking about incrementally stressing the body but also using these meditation techniques to to breathe and the stuff that i was doing was a little bit further out there where like uh, somebody would bring you back to a moment that stressed you and stress the body and you'd and you'd work it out of your nervous system and it's another what you're describing what i hear is another way to do it and i and i think it's so awesome from from emotional mental health perspective because in western culture it's like just take a fucking pill right right exactly (laughs) and and it doesn't it doesn't get out of the system and we don't learn to to release this stuff and I have the the amount of clarity that I have in my life right now and going back to what you said was the next thing uh, of like being able to make better decisions. I have this immense clarity right now because the conversation in my head has turned down to from 95 to like one or two and with meditation and breathing like that becomes manageable and I just have this immense clarity where I can make much better choices and I'm going to leave this to a practical example. I was in a conversation the other day. I could just be much more present the other day I was in a conversation with a girl and we're at the end of a dinner and I said something and I, I noticed that it triggered her and she's a therapist and she emailed me afterwards about um, a book and I said, hey, do you have some time to chat tonight? It's a little bit late. So it was like after midnight, but um, tomorrow could you give me a call? And so she called me and I said, hey, I noticed that I said something and it felt like it triggered you and I noticed that you first said something, then you turned and looked out the window and then you left. It was at the end of the dinner. And she goes, I can't believe that you picked that up. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I just uh, I, I picked it up. And the reason why I picked it up is because I was present. As you described earlier, I didn't have all the, the anxiety that I did a few years ago and that had built up over time because I didn't always have that anxiety. It accrued. And, um, and she was shocked and she talked about it. And she's like, thank you so much for calling me and bringing it up. And she just, she had some things that she wanted to say. And basically she was suppressing them and not releasing them. <laughs> And, uh, and so the stuff that you're talking about, I think it's so awesome because as a, a psychiatrist, a lot of people don't, who are listening to this, who've never been through therapy, probably don't realize you can prescribe medication, right? That's the difference between a psychiatrist. One of the differences between right. a psychiatrist right. and a psychologist. Um, so you can do that, but you've also explored these other sort of Eastern, uh, approaches or other approaches that aren't as mainstream in Western medicine. And I f- have had, like immense growth and improvements in my own emotional and mental health as a consequence. And I'm, I'm just so thankful that you're sharing these with uh, our listeners because they're a lot of them are, this is the first time they've heard about a lot of these things. I don't Do you have any thoughts? Well, you know, the simplest analogy I use in my courses, and this is a modification of what I learned from the teacher in India is if you think of your mind as like a tablecloth, And I would say, by the way, the quality of your mind determines the quality of your life. If your mind is chaotic, your life will be chaotic. Um, But if you think of your mind as like a tablecloth, when you or your family eats at the table every day, 
that tablecloth gets stains on it. And you could say, well, if I was just more perfect in the way I eat, I wouldn't get stains on it. Well, it ain't ever going to happen. <laughs> you know, there's just stains. That's how it happens in this universe. There's wastage, whatever we do in some way. We have to manage that. We have to deal with that. And you get stains on the tablecloth of your mind from stress, from intense emotions, especially negative emotions, but also positive emotions may be wonderful, but they're stressful too. They require energy to deal with. So, you know, people will say to me, well, it's the negative things, right? I'm like, well, when you get married, isn't that positive? Yes. Isn't that stressful? Yes. You get a new job. That's wonderful. But isn't it stressful? Well, yes. And other, other things like that. So you get the stains on the tablecloth of your mind. And I see the exercise as like an enzyme pre-soak for loosening the stain up. And then the breathing is like putting the tablecloth of your mind through the washer. And the attention training, otherwise known as meditation, is kind of like drying and ironing the tablecloth. So there's no wrinkles in it. And there may be times where you don't have time to iron it and you just throw it on the line to let it dry. Um, but, you know, what it says, nobody teaches us how to wash the stains from the stress of life. And the most important part is what our own mind does. So we have to survive. We have to compete. We have to take resources. And often that means taking them from other people or sharing them. We have to get resources for ourselves and that stress to become an adult and have your own family and have your own territory, that's stressful. And men have to be protective and guarding, but there are times where you need to be nurturing. I mean, it's kind of a more masculine quality to be protective and a more feminine quality to be nurturing. But my feeling is we need maximal capacities we are now more challenged. There are more people on earth than ever before. And our environment is more degraded than ever before. And I also think we're not only destroying the environment, we're destroying each other and ourselves by how we're living. And we really need to come back to our proper balance. And I see the breathing as, as a part of that. And, and as part of that, we need to heal ourselves from our, our accumulated stress. Uh, and it's it, it, each person has to do that inner work. But I think that it's more powerful and goes better when we do it at least some of the time in a group. And I, I, I think we were ultimately made to do that. There was an interesting movie from Finland came out around 1990, the early 90s, called Pathfinder. And it's about uh, a, a, a hunting gathering Finnish tribe about a thousand years ago. So they have to hunt reindeer. And to know where the reindeer are, they have to use their intuition. And so the tribe gets together at night and does singing and drumming and dancing around a fire. And one person is the best dreamer uh, of kind of having visions. And so the, and he is the head of the tribe because he will know where the reindeer is where they have to find them to have food. <clears throat> and they are invaded by large men from the east. <laughs> and uh, the, the leader is killed and a younger man has to take over. And, uh, but it's interesting how they, I think, accurately portrayed people as 
what people did back in those days was they got together and they sang and they danced and they breathed and had visions uh, together. And I think that uh, we need to really come together uh, or we will destroy ourselves. Yeah, I think it's very well said. There's so many things that you said today that are awesome. Any other sort of wisdom that you, you want to share with uh, the listeners before before we depart? Uh, practice, practice, practice. But you got to know the right stuff to practice. <laughs> so that's, I mean, I'm 65 now. I've seen, I've trained with some very famous masters from India, China, Japan, and uh, had wonderful friends who shared things with me that they learned from Africa and Russia. And I've learned from those things and, and felt that, you know, it can transform people's lives and the letters we get from people. And we, we have a book called The Healing Power of the Breath that trains people in the breathing if they can't make it to courses we do. Uh, and it's wonderful for me getting letters from people all over the world saying, thank you for changing my life. And people find often within the first month or two that sports they play, they just start doing them a lot better. <laughs> and often their coaches are like, God, what are you doing differently? You know, you're like a different person. And they're like, well, I don't feel like a different person. I, I'm, I, I know for myself and for most people, you, you don't pay attention to what's happening inside until you practice it for a while. And uh, it really changes your life. And you can learn to do it while you're doing other things. And then you do things consciously. Uh, but in a relaxed way. Often when you're paying attention to that, it makes you freeze up, like asking a centipede to make sure where he's putting his feet. He'll just fall over. Uh, so all these things take practice. And I've, I've had wonderful teachers, and my feeling is it has changed my life and my family and the people I see as patients that I want to share that with other people. And Social media has come along at a time where it's more possible for people to find you. And many of the people who train with me are therapists, mental health professionals, or medical professionals who found some of our scientific publications on the Internet and then come to train with us or ask us to join them with different charitable projects they have helping people heal in different parts of the U.S. or other countries. I think it's awesome. I was talking to a, had a conversation with a friend the other day, and he was talking about some of the things that, that you're talking about, but you've gone even a lot further on. And he goes, I've been doing this stuff 30 or 40 years. And he goes, back then it was like so far out there for a lot of people in the West. He goes, but now it's the cutting edge of a lot of these areas. And, and it's really awesome because you're on that cutting edge, and it's super cool. And even the things that you're saying about energy, I remember – uh, if someone would have told me this five, 10 years ago, I'd been like, what are you talking about? And, and then I made the realization <laughs> that like we see it's, it's light waves, right? Like when we talk, right. it, it's sound waves. These are energy waves. Exactly. When, um, exactly. The, like this is all heat, like the heat that our body gives off, the food that we consume is, it's all energy. And, uh, and when I, I broke that down into a sort of practical everyday stuff, I'm like, holy shit. Like not only is energy moving around atoms, this is a lens that makes a lot of sense. And um, ho hopefully we can get you to come back and talk even more about the stuff. You have so much uh, great wisdom sure. to share. Um, we're going to post a link in the description of this podcast and on, the, on our website so that people can find you and everything that you're doing 
more easily. Great. Uh, th- thank you Great. so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you. Absolutely. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.